I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Jeff Jacobs and I first met while covering the Olympics many years ago. I immediately felt a bond. We're kindred spirits. We're both a little crazy about the craft. I mean that with all respect for Jeff. He's a writer's writer. Readers have benefited from his passion and talent since the late 1970s. Jeff is still writing for Hearst Connecticut Media after spending 34 years at the Hartford Current, where he earned a reputation as one of the nation's top sports columnists. We're lucky that he's walked into our pub. Jeff, have a seat. It's an open tab on Pressbox Access. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. I'm really excited about this. I saw the, the names before me, and I'm a little intimidated. Oh, no, there's no intimidation. Wigs, no. Got some big wigs on no. there. <laughs> We're all one crazy tribe here. <laughs> <laughs> it is great to talk with you again, Jeff. It's been way too long, and I I do feel a kindred spirit with you. I, I think, uh, you know, I always admired the fact that the words mattered to you. You were somebody who would bleed on the keyboard. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's so different now. I, first thing you told me was don't get don't get involved in like any problems with journalism today and all that sort of stuff. And so I'll open up with this. But like it was so different in that when I was in college and coming out, everything was about the written word, writing well, reporting well, and being involved in all sorts of sports. And now it seems like you have to be involved in twenty eight different platforms. And it's best to be involved in one sport. So you can, someone can call you up and say, hey, can you do video on volleyball? Can you write about volleyball? It's so different. So, yeah, I, I grew up with, with the written word. And uh, it's funny because I got to introduce my, uh, my buddy, Jerry Sullivan, who I grew up down the street from in Newport, right. Rhode Island. Buffalo Rider. Just down yeah. the street. Yeah, and he, uh, longtime sports columnist of the Buffalo News. And we just grew up together, playing sports, writing about sports. Uh, the big thing with us, we used to read the sporting news. I know a lot of people talk about Sports Illustrated, and granted, we read it. But the sporting news had about, at the time, a half dozen or so columnists from around the country that came every right, syndicated. week. Dick yeah. Young, Dick Young, uh, uh, Leonard Carpet, who was known as like the, the decimal points in his in his briefcase, and uh, uh, Larry King wrote for them for a while, believe it or not. And uh, Art Spander, I think who I had on, he was he was one of them. And uh, Joe Falls from Detroit. So we would read those guys all the time, and it gave us a, a, a different types of columnists. But you know, besides all the baseball and all that was in that was in the sport, it was those columnists, they spurred us along. <laughs> <laughs> so you basically carried on the lineage of all those great writers at Sporting News that you read growing up. You became one of those guys who the words did matter. And, you know, you covered hockey for many, many years as a hockey beat reporter and then went on to be a general columnist. 45 years in the business, I believe, uh, almost yes. half a century. And then including 34 at the Hartford Current. And where you were uh, a sports columnist for 23 years. And when you think yeah. about all those years and all those experiences, if somebody were to stop you on the street and says, Jeff, what was it like to be a sports writer back in the day? What comes to mind? Deadlines. 
the deadlines. <laughs> that, that was, <laughs> I can only tell you. You, 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 you haven't seen someone panic till you've seen me covering the, uh, the Whalers games up in Montreal or Quebec. And that was in the old Adams division. And you had the old acoustic couplers that you'd put the phone oh, yeah. into from the radio shack and the sound quality from uh, the phones crossing international borders wasn't particularly good. <laughs> and then the Canadians would just score goal after goal after goal on the whale. <laughs> and it'd be like, they'd play this blur, blur, blanc rouge that every, every time they scored. So every time I tried to send, I'd get nothing but like that mishmash. You know, you've probably been there, that, that mishmash of just uh, not letters, but... Uh, symbols uh, and noises. Symbols, and- yeah. And that was... Uh, that was panic. Was so, there was there the one deadlines. particular night where you just felt like uh, that's one that that caused you extreme pain? Uh, I don't know. They all run together because the the, the 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 whale always lost. It was always put it this way. It was always Gila. The NHL was always accused by Harry Sinden and the Bruins of calling penalties early in the third period to lift the Canadians to yet another victory. So the worst point was early in the third period, trying to send your second period running, and Gila Fleur come out in the power play and and, and, and nail one, and then the, the place went nuts, and I couldn't send. <laughs> and it'd be like you have to go back on the operator. She might be speaking. French, you know, that back and forth. It, it, it was a mess. Took a few years but, off your uh, life, right? <laughs> uh, it, uh, yeah, it did. Uh, we'll get to that in a while. Uh, but yeah, that that's one thing I think about. I I, I just think about. Uh, t- I just think about two parts of the brain when 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 you were a sports writer. One was like the really organized mm-hmm. part with the names. And, and with hockey, there were a lot of European names that you, you could just butcher on deadline. And the numbers, all those things. And on the other side, being creative. Uh, and I've watched some, just some masters. Mark Wicker comes to mind when I, when I was working in the Philadelphia area. Could just write something in 45 minutes to an hour and just be spot free in terms of like, Errors and then just be just great writing. Lupica, Mike Lupica later on when I used to watch him like uh, at Yankees games right there in October, set the scene like few other people could right on deadline and still have all the facts. So it always, the, the two parts of the brain trying to work at the same time is something that always fascinated me because I felt that I was uh, very good at either of them, but only so-so at making them come together uh, on, on deadline. It was a constant, constant battle to get everything right and be creative. I, I find myself too, uh, you know, too wooden sometimes, it, it, or I'd start writing creatively and I go like, oh God, I'm six graphs in and I haven't, I haven't put a fact <laughs> in yet. Let's, let's try getting the score in, you know, that, that type of thing. So it's a, there's a real art and science to, to, to uh, sports writing, especially uh, column writing on deadline. Well, I think you're being a little humble too, because, uh, you know, just recently you were named for the 11th time Connecticut sports writer of the year. So you certainly figured out how to make those two parts of your brain work in cohesion, even on some horrible deadlines. And you've been doing it for many, many years. I basically think of you as a survivor, you know, a survivor on deadlines, surviving the travel, the screaming matches with Jim Calhoun. Uh, (laughs) Hell, you even survived two heart attacks, Jeff. 
Think yeah. about this. It, let me tell you, the worst one, <laughs> I, I laugh now because it's, it's been 18 years, but it was right before, it was right around my 50th birthday. And it actually happened, it uh, started happening at the WNBA All-Star Game, which down at Mohegan Sun here in, in uh, Connecticut. And I felt a lot of pain, but I, I, I went, went to the hospital and they let me out. And I, I was a little iffy on that. But two days later, I had a massive heart attack right in my kitchen. And boy, I'll tell you, the younger you are, I, they tell me the more it hurts because you still have some like muscle mass. And it feels like this is gigantic. Everybody's had a muscle cramp running. It feels like this gigantic muscle cramp. And you were chest. 49 years old. This is 2005. Yeah, just, yeah, just, yeah, this, yeah. But it had been in my family. My dad had one, a, a coronary in the late 40s. My, my grandfather died in the, in the 50s. Uh, in his 50s, in the 1940s. So it's in the blood. Uh, but I'm laying there on the floor. I thought I was a goner. So I'm, I'm going to my wife. She's standing there and going, honey, I'm so sorry for everything I've ever done wrong. And I love you so much and everything like that. And it was like, you know, it's like a show you think you're going down to and like in a plane crash. This is it, you know. And But they came and they gave me a whole bunch of nitro, nitroglycerin, which kind of, opened me up a little bit. They, they rushed me to the hospital. Then they put me in a helicopter to take me up to UMass. And I ended up having like a quadruple bypass and everything like that. And I lived. So I always kid my wife ever since. And when I go down for the count, honey, I, I got nothing left here to give you. <laughs> <laughs> didn't somebody write a, didn't it, somebody write a letter to the current about your heart attack? Oh, 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 one guy, one guy emailed me that his only regret was that, uh, that I had survived and uh, didn't return to the University wow. of Missouri. <laughs> that was a little, uh, even by our standards, yeah, you got to that's a little harsh. <laughs> I mean, the guy's wishing you death. <laughs> well, thankfully you survived uh, that one in 2005. You survived another one in 2019 at age 64. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm so happy that uh, you're with us and still writing. You know, it's amazing to me that you're still grinding them out and still putting your heart into the matter. Uh, I love being a storyteller, but I also love the controversy. I think as long, I, I think the key to it is, uh, and my uncle told me this, he lived a long time, uh, always remain curious. Right. Curiosity. Curious is the key right. to life. Curiosity is, is the key to staying involved and staying young, I think. Well, I'm curious about one thing here, Jeff, and that's in the late 1970s, you were 22 years old, working for the Port Huron Times-Herald in Michigan, and you're covering an international hockey league game. Oh, you're the man for digging this the up. The Port Huron Flags he... versus the Dayton yes. Gems. Now, you talk about a rivalry. <laughs> Port Huron versus Dayton. What happened that night? All right. I grew up in New England, in Rhode Island. And in, in Rhode Islanders, we're proud of being basketball and hockey fans at the same time. It seemed like so much of the country, it's like, oh, hockey this or basketball that. It's like you, we, we were at once basketball and hockey fans. So I'd, I'd watched the game for a right. long time, hockey. But I'm right out of college. And uh, there was two fighters, uh, Archie Henderson it was like 6'6 six, six on Port Huron. Actually, there was a line on Port Huron. Let's think about this. 
The one line had more than a thousand pounding lines. <laughs> Three eyes. I, I could never find another, the another machine. line that they had. They were crazy. But anyway, Archie was one of them. And there was a bench clearing brawl. You, when you're talking about, you know, slap shot, think slap shot. Okay, and I'm a young Dickie Dunn, right? <laughs> and and uh, and so they're fighting, and it's going around and around. And they were tired. Uh, Trognitz was exhausted. This is Willie Trognitz from it, Dayton. Willie Trognitz, yeah. He, I'm sorry, yeah, he was on Dayton, and he was a fighter. And uh, they had fought like to exhaustion. So, but Archie hadn't didn't have enough. So he came at Trognitz, and Trognitz got a, at a stick, and just brought the stick right down on his. Creased his wow. nose <laughs> in his forehead, cut him, broke his nose, gave him a concussion. Like an axe, he took an axe to his head. Yeah, yeah, he didn't. He didn't. In all, he didn't bring it all the way back. Like, like you know, who was? Uh, oh, I can't think of her. A uh, Lizzie Borden. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was more like boom down from there, but it was hard, and he he went down, and there was blood, and so I tried to cover it best I could. Went into the Dayton locker room. Started to ask Willie a few questions, and his teammates kind of like took me by the t- by the arms and I kind of like car- carried me or escorted me out of the locker room. <laughs> Wait a minute, they it carried just, you out of the little, locker room? Yeah, yeah. Like like my I don't know if my feet were touching the the ground or not. <laughs> right? They did. So it was in the commissioner of the league banned him for life. Who Willie from the league? Willie got banned the guy's for name life. Was Bill- yeah, Willie got banned for life. Of course, two weeks later, a week later, the World Hockey Association, where anything went, they signed him to the Cincinnati Stingers. <laughs> but for one week, he was banned for life. And all of it, I come back and talk to my sports editor, and I think he thought that, like, oh, boy, here's this young kid that, you know, he saw a fight for the first time and was was a little right. put off, you know. But sure enough, it was real. And all of a sudden, like, Sports Illustrated, Newsday, and all these different people were calling me up. And I'm going, wow. This, that's when I learned that things can spread in a hurry. So you <laughs> you know what viral, I mean? Here I am by my viral back before viral was a word. Yeah, back, back right, where it wasn't even a word, right? And so it's like, you know, here I am, the only guy there at McMoran Place Arena. Uh, and... All of a sudden, it's like all over the, the news nationally. So it, that that was a, a wake-up call to me, like, wow. <laughs> you never know when the 15 minutes are going to come. Now, some you know? guys might have been a, you know scared off by something like that. Um, why did you um, stick with it? Why? What was it about that moment that said, you know what, this is for me? <sighs> That's a great question. I love the excitement of it. And I always love the excitement of it if I know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. There are some things, especially when you become a columnist, as you as you well know, uh, you're out there covering the Olympics and there's some events that, you know, you don't know anything about, let's be honest. Uh, and you do your best homework going into it, but still, it's not. And so if something like that happens, it's like, ooh, boy. You, you hate that. You, you come down with the volume up to 10 on something you may not be uh, an expert on to play it louder than a three <laughs> or four. But as long as I knew what I was talking about, I always, I always enjoyed the excitement. Um, I like the debate. I like, and then goes into an argument. Newport, Rhode Island, it's funny about Newport, Rhode Island. And when I tell them from there, they, people think of like mansions and all, you know, like all these rich people. And, and certainly they're there, but you know, there's, 
a couple hundred rich people in 30,000 townies. And ladies and gentlemen, one of the 30,000 townies. And it's an old Navy town and a lot of lovable Irish Americans who are not afraid to go down to Thames Street and have a good time. So I kind of grew up in that environment of like having a good time and, and getting to a good argument. Uh, so I, I always enjoyed it. H- having said that, though, I always admired and I watched and I, I can't speak for other ones. I admire them and I distrust this aspect. They seem to be didn't seem to bother them that much. Or, uh, the, I'm talking about the columnists that might be mm-hmm. getting into a, a big, big time arguments or all that. And they seemed almost immune from the criticism. Maybe they were Buffalo and me. Maybe they weren't. But I always took it, I always seem to take it more, I don't, I don't want to use it personally, but I think I'm oversensitive to, uh, to criticism a lot of times, even though I've had it a million times and I'm used to it. And I don't carry it, uh, I don't carry it for years right. or anything like that. But in the moment, you can sting me. It, you know, some people are hard as a shell, man, but it, it, it goes through about three layers of skin on me before I start toughening up and like uh, and, and, and stop it from hurting. You also loved hockey, right? Yeah. The, I'll tell you, hockey at the time was a way of getting into bigger newspapers because the sport was expanding. Mm-hmm. Remember, it was six NHL cities. And then, you know, where, where you are in Columbus, you now have a team and we don't have one in Connecticut. But uh it was expanding. And I saw, I said, this is, I feel this is an automatic that I could get to a major league team. Uh, and I loved all four sports, but I just saw hockey as an automatic. So it was It was at a time where it was a little unusual uh, right. nationally. Maybe some cases it still is. But that that's why I, I chose that one. That was just a professional right. choice. Uh, I, I knew it I knew and it, it worked, worked. And it did work. That was, it did I'm work. Not sure. two years later, yeah, I'm you not were sure. covering the Philadelphia yeah. Flyers. Right? Right, right. And they first year in, they went on a 35-game on Amazing. Beaton Streak. 79-80, they ended up losing on a very controversial call uh, to the Islanders. It was the Islanders' first year of that. Of that of their, in the Stanley dynasty. Cup Finals, Game 6, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Game 6. You know what's really funny about that, Todd, was... I was so engrossed in that, that the 1980 Olympic mm-hmm. thing, Miracle on Ice, didn't have, didn't have as big an impact on me as it would later or it, as it did on America at the time. I was so engrossed. I'm going like, oh, those guys couldn't, the Flyers would wipe the deck <laughs> with those guys. <laughs> uh, all together missing <laughs> the cultural significance of it all. Thank you, you were, very you much. You were all in on the team you were covering. <laughs> I was all in on that 35-game unbeaten streak, which stands to this day, by the way, 25 early 10. Think about that. It, 35 in it, a row, it, you don't lose. It, I got a story on the, on the, the night. Uh, all right, ended, let's hear it. ended in... Ended in Bloomington, Minnesota, of all places. The Minnesota North Stars, uh, before you know, before it went downtown, the, the the stadium and the arena were out there in Bloomington mm-hmm. at the airport, and it was cold. And I still was using a typewriter at the end, you know, <laughs> with the fax and things stuff. So it was a short, relatively short walk from the arena to the hotel across a gigantic. It was a big parking lot, but it was a relatively short walk. But it was also like zero degrees, and true. True to my ways, I was sweating on deadline, and 
as I walk, walk carrying the typewriter, uh, boy, I haven't told this story in a long time. As I walked uh, uh, across the uh, big parking lot to the hotel, um, I got to the, to the uh, into the hotel, and I, and I discovered that my hand had frozen to the handle. You know, like in the Christmas story where the kid's tongue sticks to, to, to the pole? <laughs> my hand was stuck to the typewriter handle. And I was absolutely panicked. And I'm talking about two, three minutes. I'm going, where do I go to the hospital? Or <laughs> Wait a minute, you're lugging around. The so, typewriter stuck to your hand? And, my, and it wasn't giving off. So finally, I, I walk up to the guy at the desk, right? And he goes, oh, no problem. He walks me over to the hall, uh, excuse me, the uh, wall heater and puts puts me down next to it. And sure enough, just gave away. And I go, oh, man, I'm so embarrassed. He goes, don't be. You'd be surprised how many people <laughs> get hands get stuck to things <laughs> in the ice. So I didn't feel that as stupid. Been, was that <laughs> a Marriott? A lot of sports riders were staying there. Yes, it was a Marriott in the Marriott <laughs> Bloomington. Bloomington Marriott. So a lot of and sports so, like, riders yeah, had so experienced that, this. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, but like, yeah. So that's how the thirty-five game unbeaten streak ended with my, with my hand stuck to a typewriter. <laughs> that's one of the craziest things I've heard. <laughs> well, hockey had those those crazy moments, those uh, experiences, the passion, the yeah. characters. Uh, you covered so many years. You did eleven years on the beat with the Hartford Whalers. But Whalers aside, in hockey in general, what was it about the sport that? was so much fun to cover back in those days. Well, it was, their money lagged way behind. I remember looking at uh, uh, some of the salaries, those guys, they didn't make them public at those times, but some of them might, you know, you'd hear, and, you know, guys making $140,000 scoring 40 goals and stuff. There was some, uh, uh, Marcel Dion, some of the Kings and some of the Rangers made some money, three, 400000 but everybody was woefully underpaid. But I think that also led to a certain amount of humility. That and the Canadian spirit, especially the Western guys, very humble, used to getting up at, you know, early in the morning, milking cows in the frozen weather. And so there's a lot to admire about those guys. Uh, they were rough and tumble, a lot of them, but there was also real uh, humility about them uh, and a kindred spirit. And I think that's changed some right, over the, the years, as I've seen a lot. You know, the, the money's as the money's gotten bigger. They're they're not immune to acting like a lot of the other the other sports. But part of that was yeah, it, and, and also being it was. I mean, you probably speak to this in Columbus in a way, uh, as far as like the team and stuff. It's not like New York and Boston where there are a million people mm -hmm. that uh, that uh, covered it. So I was traveling alone a lot of times. And so I would, things I'd never write or say I saw and things I, I'd have to make a decision on what I'd write and say, you know, it was like, think about this. Uh, Ray Ferraro is now, oh, he's, he's national television announcer with the, he was out in Canada. Now he's down here in the States and everything. He was a quote machine and guys would complain to me to interview them more because I quoted Ray too much. <laughs> Think about that. They run away from reporters yeah. nowadays, right? Now I had guys like arguing for me to quote them more in the paper. That is something you would never <laughs> see. And maybe never even saw it at that time in, in the larger cities, but, but cover, I mean, there were, I was on a commercial flight one day and a defenseman, Doug Huda was all of a sudden throwing $20 bills at me 
from I guess from his uh, uh, per diem, <laughs> and it, it was a commercial flight, and the money's coming over, and he's going, "How much do I have to pay you?" For you to write one nice thing about me, <laughs> <laughs> and Frankie Peter Frank Peter Angelo, who was uh, uh, the goalie at the time, was sitting right behind me. He goes, "Pick the money up, Jeff. Take it, take it, keep it." And I look over the lady next to me, and I go, "I don't know if you know this, who we are." And she goes, "Oh, I know." <laughs> we fly out of Hartford to, to like like out on a West Coast trip, so it was like and that's how close it was, though. You know what I mean? You, the the, the you just see people at bars and, and things like that. And it was just, it was a different well, time. Well, it was also different in Hartford, right? So the Whalers are there for yeah. 23 years. And, you know, they came over from the WHL originally as the New England Whalers. WHA, and then yeah. they, you know, to become the Hartford Whalers. You started covering them as a beat writer in 1984 and did it for 11 more years. Right. Um, right. The relationship between Hartford and the city um, was special, right? Yeah, it, I always say this. I say, why didn't it work? Well, I said, well, Hartford itself is not necessarily a major league city. It's not. Connecticut's a major league state, as you find out what like how big Yukon Nation is and everything like that. So, uh, but people in certain suburbs of 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 uh, Hartford, they bought season tickets better than Canadians did. Avon, Farmington, Glastonbury, those the people were so invested in it. And it was before UConn really mm-hmm. hit big in the 80s. So, I mean, they won one playoff round. They had a parade. <laughs> really? You don't find Yeah. Wow. That always, you know, it was in the Addisers. Now, I like to say, I was in the Addisers, Buffalo, Boston, Montreal, Quebec. So, I knew all those towns. I used to have an Adams Division wallet. American mm-hmm. money on one on one thing divided by Canadian money on the other side. But the Montreal Canadiens, they were who had been, you know, that's like the New York Yankees stuff. Those guys like Larry Robinson and Barry, uh, Bob Ganey, they were always amazed. Like, you had to win the Stanley Cup in Montreal at that time just right, to break right. even. And, 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 and they go, they had a parade for winning one round? Like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. Well, it was great until, uh, I think, well, 1991, they made one of the most infamous trades in, in hockey history oh, when uh, trade, general yeah. manager Eddie Johnson decided to trade the team's best, the franchise's best player ever, Ron Francis, and Ole Samuelson to uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, you, were, you were around that. that. That just must have shook everybody in town. Yeah, it turned out to, it just, when you talk about classic bad trades in the sport, that was it. I mean, the Penguins won, won two Stanley Cups. Um, Ron Francis went, went to Hall of Fame, and I think he was like the fourth or fifth leading scorer when he, when he, uh, but he, uh, when he retired. But he was just, he was just a rock as a person. I always say this, people ask me, who are the nicest people you covered? In, in Connecticut, you always have to have, a male and a and a and, and a female mm-hmm. athlete because we are very big on women's sports. Ron Francis and Rebecca Lobo are the two nicest people. Really, but yeah, it was it was it, it it crushed the franchise. It never quite re- re- recovered, and you know there was just a series of mishaps there. Chris Pronger turned out to be a you know Hall of Famer. He he got traded, but before he did, uh, he was a top round pick. He like seven of them got arrested for a. A, a gigantic bar fight. In You're Buffalo. around a lot of hockey fights, Jeff. <laughs> Didn't you? Weren't you once at a fight? You saw a hockey fight at Chuck's Steakhouse at a mall. Oh yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, it was Ace Bailey 
who died in 9 11. Oh, great Boston Ace Bruin. Bailey was a Bruins yeah. player. Yeah, Boston Bruins. And he, he then wow. worked as a, like a head scout for Los Angeles, but he still lived in Boston. So he'd come down to, um, to Hartford a lot. You know, you watch the games in Boston and in Hartford. You could knock out a lot of teams by doing that. So he stopped in at Chuck's A-House. I knew him a little bit. And one night, he's in. They, they got each other by the necks, these two guys. And the guy, they're yelling at him, yelling at him. Finally, I looked at the guy, a fan. I'd seen around, big Whalers fan. I go like, don't you know that's Ace Bailey? And the guy goes, oh, uh, hey, let me buy you a beer. <laughs> <laughs> They went from like right at each other's neck, ready to go, oh, oh, you know, a pure brawl. And the next thing you saw, he's got his arm around him, like like uh, wanting to buy him a drink. Yeah, uh, as as the New York Rangers fans like to remind the Whalers, they used to come up in them and the Bruins when they didn't sell out. They'd have the uh, they take they buy up the upper ring up there to, and make. For like a sellout, but they chant things, and the Rangers fans used to chant like "You play in a shopping mall" because anybody's been to Hartford, they they used to be like it was attached to a shopping mall. The, the <laughs> so I mean, and all of a sudden, you play in a shopping mall, and then if anybody knows England, the Rangers, all of a sudden, the minute they go like. Pot Van sucks. You know, like that was a That's always a great comeback, right? That's right. <laughs> That's it. They're chanting, you're playing a shopping mall. All of a sudden, went to like, they magically knew to sing, uh, to uh, chant Pot Van sucks. <laughs> They'll do that now, you know, 30 years later. Well, you later. see Ace Bailey <laughs> fighting a fan in a steakhouse in the mall. So, I mean, that kind of, that kind of yeah. sums up the way the hockey is built on passion. <laughs> and now they went from fighting to hugging. Uh, but yes. I think the relationship of the city and the passion for, you know, the town really, it, it really hit home when all of a sudden the ownership group, Peter, led by Peter Carmanos, decided they're going to leave Hartford. And by this time, you're a columnist and not on the beat, but you're you're putting your opinion out there and you're really having to, you know, fight for the city, right? What was that like as a col right. young columnist uh, trying to take on an issue like that? Yeah, it's really interesting. I found myself, because you could make an argument that uh, the Winnipeg's, well, they've recovered. Quebec hasn't gotten on. Harvard, that, that it was, the, the thing that was so tough about Hartford was not the size. It was that we're squeezed by Boston and right. New York. You know what I mean? So you have people that are UConn fans. And they might be Bruins fans, they might be Rangers fans, depending on what time in the state. They're, they're either Red Sox or Yankee fans. That's always right. crazy with us. Patriots or Giants fans. So, you know, we were squeezed by lack of living space. Uh, and that always hurt. And uh, But at the same time, you know, you, 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 I felt obliged, and, and I think rightfully so, to, you know, stick up for the city. And and, and then at the end, it, the governor, who later spent couple stints in jail, John Rowland, and who fought like crazy to bring the Patriots here unsuccessfully a couple mm -hmm. of years later. Uh, he wasn't a big hockey fan. Unlike uh, Lowell Weicker, he, he of Watergate hearings, the famous Lowell Weicker, and later became our governor who once called. This, I'm one of the few guys that ever got called across the street into the state capitol to come in, call me in, goes, the governor calls me and goes, Jeff, sit down. The Whalers are not leaving on my watch. Now get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> the governor of the state, he was like the previous governor. <laughs> so, like, you don't often get called in to the governor's office. You know, he was a big, he was a huge hockey fan. His son was a goalie. And, and well, it turns out, but it turns but, out uh, they did leave. Carmanos moved. They did leave, Carolina. yeah. And, They're now the 
Carolina Hurricanes, and they and yeah. you know they left April 13, 1997, That last game, what was that like to yeah. call? It, people were crying signs. They had reacquired Kevin Deneen, who played in Columbus. Uh, he he was a heart and soul guy in the 80s. He went and played in the Flyers for a while. He came back, and uh, he scored their last goal, and he spoke to the crowd. So it was like John Wayne in the Alamo, you know <laughs> what I mean? And he was going down. Uh, he was going down with the, with everybody. It was, it was, it was, it was so sad. I mean, it was, that's the only thing I could think about how sad it was. They, uh, they played Tampa Bay, which wasn't particularly, you know, if it was being fitting, they would have played the Bruins or the Canadians or something, you know, but, but, but still it was just, it was just sad. And, and then and that was it. And people go, oh, well, we covered minor league this night. Uh, town never really recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, was replaced by UConn as a state entity, but the town was never yeah. the same. Well, the Whalers still have a booster club that's still alive, and there's still the song, the Brass Bonanza, the Whalers team song, the fight song. Uh, the, what's the story with that? It's more famous than the team now. Everywhere, you know, people just talk about it. They buy the vintage jerseys. And it, it, it was a song that was originally used as a filler between those, you know, the albums they used to have in the old days of like season highlights and they'd have like, you know, some, yeah, it's hit a home run right. and, and they had some music filler and that was the song. And the guy who got it, they liked it. And they, so they decided that maybe they'll use some introductory music at the, at the, at the games and after they scored goals. Right. So it was always uniquely, Hartford, some people made fun of it. Brian Burke, who came in, thought it was minor league. But anyway, it just, even after they left, it was being played to 2004 Red Sox when they won the, when they won the World Series. Just, it, it, I hear it everywhere. <laughs> and so the same day in my life, this was an earth-shattering day. I got an iPhone. I got on Facebook and I got Twitter <laughs> all on the same day. My, my daughter said, your head's going to explode. <laughs> well, anyway, two weeks, I've been searching for the guy who wrote this song. He disappeared into Europe. And within, I got on Facebook and found him in Belgium. He was like, eight, he's since passed. He's like an 88-year-old guy named Jacques Assea. And uh, he went by the name J- Jack Say on, on the thing with the, with, with, with the, uh, with Brass Bonanza. So I found him. People were looking for him for like 30 years and I found him with it. He was in Belgium. <laughs> he didn't speak English. He spoke French. He spoke a little English. And, uh, he was like a grandson of a famous classical musician. I'm talking like top 200 all time, uh, <laughs> back from like 19th century. But like I found two weeks and like, and, and then like everybody's going. I told you this social media stuff is going to work. <laughs> you know, I held out. I didn't have. A, I didn't have an iPhone. I had a little flip phone. Flip phone. No iPhone. No Twitter. No Facebook. Two weeks. I find Jacques Assea. Uh, uh, so it's like I'm, I'm. I'm famous for that. Believe it or not. Like, like I don't know. If I should be proud of it. But like it, it was. Uh, I found him. He was 88 years old and living well, in Belgium. Well, it shows your diligence, right? <laughs> hey, can you give us a little brass bonanza? All right. <laughs> That's wonderful. 
Well, like you mentioned, Hartford, um, it is squeezed by Boston and New York. Boston's like 100 miles away. New York's like 120, I believe. Um, but as a columnist, that also opened up your world to other topics, right? Oh. So uh, you yeah. went from being a hockey beat writer to now you've got a bigger canvas to paint on. Um, and not only that, but with Boston and New York, during your tenure at the Hartford Current, especially, you have the Yankees with Derek Jeter winning five World Series. You have the Red Sox breaking the curse, winning four World Series. You have the Patriots with Belichick and Brady winning uh, six Super Bowls. I mean, you had so yeah. much. You were covering royalty, Jeff. Oh, yeah. And, and it, the weirdest thing, Ty, was this, is that when you're in a regional thing, you're just not as big as some of those other writers. You know, you had Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, and you had Lupica and all and the New Yorkers and all that. And I always felt, and I always said this, I could write something so good or so bad or so spastic, and nobody would say boo. <laughs> but misplace a comma about UConn, and my whole world would blow up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really weird. Like, I, I had to learn to, like, uh, you know, you, you know, you had all these talk radios at, the, at these gigantic metropolises of New York and Boston, and you had what I where I was at. So, you know, it was, I always call it keeping your hands on the volume. And sometimes I did a better job than others. It was okay to let it loose in New York if you thought that, you know, because who's going to scream louder than the New York Post, right? Uh, or, you know, are you going, who's going to scream louder than Boston Sports Radio? So th th there was nothing that I was going to say or do that would be so audacious that was going to, like, shake my world. But on the other hand, you have to come back the next night and write about, you know, the UConn women or something like that. And it's like, you better be careful, right. Buster. You better be careful. Your world's going to That's the difference between my regional and hyper-local. Right. Yeah, my, my, my views didn't change. I was really honest to my views. But you had to be careful right. on the volume. When you think about all those great championship moments for Boston and New York that you were covering as a column, yeah. regional columnist, is there one in particular that sticks out? Well, certainly the 04 curse of the Red Sox was truly unbelievable. When they broke the curse, won the uh, World that, Series, yeah, beat the Cardinals. Yeah, it shook it shook people in Connecticut too. The same, you know, the same as as the fan. It, a lot of the 2004 was about the fans. So the fans in Connecticut were as invested as the fans in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. So a lot of that was a lot of people. I can I can die happy now and all those things. But when the Red Sox and the Yankees won against each other, the Connecticut was split. So it, the biggest idiot I was to the fans was not writing about their team when they played. You know, for it all, and they played a lot against each other, and a lot, and it got really heated. And a lot of it. so, you could call them it bad or lousy, but as long as you wrote about them, be like, Jacobs, what are you writing about the Red Sox for when you know Wade Boggs is <laughs> so, like that's where I, that's where I learned ignoring people is like the biggest sin you can commit against them. Not not writing horrible yeah. things about them. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was interesting to me. We'd call it the Mason Nixon line and things like that. So got Jim Mason, uh, Trot Nixon, and things like that. And uh, so and you could go. I could go right through the towns with you. That where where the line was, you could build a wall. Although I will say there were certain Yankee fans of Italian her heritage that was passed down to the family through being. DiMaggio fans and Yogi Berra fans. They they were in, that was the same as in Rhode Island. Well, how did you make up. that decision? 
<laughs> I tried to, I really tried to, to pick the best story. You know how you root for the best story? Like that's real true. So I was doubly rooting for the best story, for the best story itself. And God, hope, let me pick the right town to write about. <laughs> well, you mentioned about the regional aspect of writing about the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Yankees, the whole Boston and New York thing as a columnist in Connecticut. But then there's the hyper-local. And during your time in Connecticut, um, nothing became bigger than Connecticut basketball, University of Connecticut, men and women. Uh, Jim Calhoun built the, the men's program. Gino Oriyama obviously built the women's program. Let, let's start with the women. You know, Gino's in his 38th season. Incredible. 11 national titles, 22 final fours, 14 in a row. Um, what has it been like to see that come to life all these years? I started... I covered all their, they've, they've won 11 national championships. I covered 10 of them. The one I didn't cover was the very first one because they won it in 1995 and I was still doing the Whalers. So it took them about a decade to really get going. And when they first hit, it was in 94, 95, the New York media, especially New York Times, Sports Illustrated, they really hopped on board. It was they were the right team at the right time and the right coach to really, really help the sport that sport expand. And I looked at him sort of as in a fascinating way. They became a right. phenomenon. And so he won first, and he's he's just a he's just a remarkable person. Gino, uh, uh, Gino, yeah, he can tell stories. You sit at the bar with him. You can listen. He's very generous. Uh, you cross him, and it can go bad. I only had one truly ugly scenario with him was that he gave, uh, he staged a basket for uh, Nikisha Sales to become the all-time uh, uh, scorer at UConn. She had blown out right. the Yeah, she, uh, she got hurt. She, came yeah, out. she gets yeah. hurt. She's like one point shy of the record. And then they engineered yeah. Yeah. something with the opposing yeah. coach. She came out on crutches after the opening tip down in Villanova. I wasn't there. And uh, and uh, I was not there because I was at there. It was, it was not a powerful game. And um, uh, But I, I wrote that night. And I wrote, talk about hitting 10 on the volume. Her name was Nikisha Sales. I, I mentioned Soupy Sales <laughs> and like squirting a thing and I because I hate I hate stage stuff like that but he saw it as like as I told him he saw it as a, as a bouquet of roses I saw it as a chia pet and uh, the, the fans a lot of them were older a lot of them are older were older fans or are older fans they went crazy when I'm talking about crazy I'm talking about crazy it's a thing it's the hottest thing I've ever really? gotten into more people wrote letters to the editor off that than during the Watergate uh, investigations in the 70s. They had a complete uh, special section of the letters. <laughs> really? Wait a minute. They had a, wait a minute. One the old, runs a special section basically trashing you? Yeah, but but you know what? The managing editor, oh, there were a lot of people at the paper that didn't like me because they, they, you know, uh, a lot of people saw them as their girls. Mm. They didn't, it, it's a, it, not now so much, but back then, it was a real phenomenon. But the, the managing editor cut me a $1,000 check on it just to make sure that I wasn't uh, feeling too bad about it. So I, I appreciated that. There were people at the paper that were sniping me. And uh, they, the letter, the editors, were, they were just so entertaining because they came from, Kids and older people, did, you know, and so it was like a special section. 
an, uh, an elder lady, an elder lady called, found my phone call and she called up and goes, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> I go, she was like 82 years old. It was, it, it was tremendous. Although uh, she might, I, I might not so say that. If she my found understanding me is that after the season, this led to a four hour debate between you and Gino. Is that correct? Four hours? Yes, we met for four hours in his office. And the thing, he never came off his point. I, I, I found myself like giving the volume speech and, you know, the roading. I didn't want to go too far because I really believed it. But I had to go to the bathroom twice while we were there. He never moved. I was always impressed. Guy was in for four hours, just never moved from his seat. But he, he, was, uh, he was like just airtight on that he was right on that one and i'm i'm not sure to this day that he's ever i you know we get along gr fine great but i'm not sure he's ever forgiven me that part of it but that was the most really in connecticut that's the thing i'm most famous for the nikisha sales incident do you think about it differently now when you look back on it uh might have turned the volume down from a 10 to a <laughs> 7 <laughs> I read it though. I go like, boy, was I was I a young columnist and pugnacious. <laughs> well, you mentioned Gino was the right guy at the right time uh, with that team. Obviously, they had so many great players over the years. They still do. Twenty six yes. All Americans: Brianna Stewart, Maya Moore. You can go on and on. Amazing talent. Super. It really all gets back yes. to Gino. Um, why was he the right guy then? You mentioned that you could sit in a bar and, and talk. He was selling he, the game, right? Yeah, he he has his mom, who recently passed, was a very powerful uh, personality in his life, a force. She was like from Italy. She hid out from the Nazis in in, in Italy during World War II. She was, she was I, I loved it. She's like. Uh, one time in 2000, Philadelphia, she was throwing holy water at the girls when they came out. So she was, she was, she was great. But so he had a, he had a, he's really able to connect with women and men. He's a guy's guy, you know, and yet he can connect so well with women and his ability to motivate and to, and to connect with people is as good as I've ever seen. And he's an offensive coach. I, that's what I like about that about him. He 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 loves to create, you know what I mean, and, and he loves to do things. So he's uh, that's what I, I really like that about him. And uh, but uh, yeah, as he gets older now, you know, you, you uh, he's sort of like just an icon now. And the early Gino was really just just a dude, you know. Cal Calhoun was way bigger than Gino when they came in through the 80s and stuff like that. And Calhoun wasn't that nice to him. And people always ask me, oh, whose side do you take? I say, well, there's the famous Jim and the Jim that came in and the famous Gino and the Gino that came in. The only one I feel sorry for was Gino that, that came in because he, he had to fight through some stuff that Calhoun wasn't great to him, you know. And now he's he's big as life, Gino. So I, you know, he, he, he's a big boy. He, but my favorite moment was him. He had three players, including Brianna Stewart, that I just remember they won all those games in a row and they won, they won four national championships. They came in and I think we were in Indianapolis and he came in, he just hugged all three of them at one time. And I was sitting right there. I could have touched mm -hmm. him. It was like, it was surreal, you know, Brianna Stewart, Stewart, she just ran the table. She came in and won them all. That's all. Four, four champions to win. She won them all. And then, uh, 
And Gina was there hugging the three of them at one time. It was very powerful, very powerful. Well, I think about just the ability to keep something going. You build it. Building something is great, yeah. right? That's that's amazing. But then you got to chase perfection and keep it going. And the fact that the women at Connecticut, those players, all those great players, all the coaches, and Gino, they've kept that going. That's just an amazing thing to witness. It, it is. He's he's tough in practice. You know, Chris Daly as associate right, has been there all the time. She's a great recruit. She's just like, uh, she could have been, a, I like the kid, she could have been a nun in a different lifetime. She's in charge of like the discipline and the, and because the, the women that come in, they're just, they just don't have much problems there. They, you know, they, they all, they all, like I said, they they win all the games. They they make all the honor rolls, and then they go on and do great things in life. They've had very few problems. And Chris is behind a lot of that. Gino's more of a big picture guy in terms of uh, the media and stuff. But at, at practice, you see them working together, and they're they're very basketball oriented. And I said that I, I was happy for him that he went to the Olympics and won. And coach all the best players. He had the best players and all that. But just the way he just went out and proved. And I always thought he could have coached man if he wanted to. You mentioned you mentioned I, Calhoun I and uh, Jim Calhoun built the men's program when there really wasn't much there. Um, he comes in and he turns that into a national program. Um, now you had a four hour debate with Gino once. What was your relationship like with Calhoun? Tumultuous. I, I will say. He, he, I, uh, Bobby Clark, who was a, a, a god in Philadelphia Flyers, you know, from the tough days. Um, he and Jim Calhoun are the worst losers I ever saw. Calhoun was a horrible loser. Um, and my one rap on him always was he really just didn't treat the media well after he lost games and stuff. He just should have done us a an better example. job. Well, there's two famous ones that everybody knows about. That uh, not a dime back, uh, a guy came in who was a, not a, uh, a regular beat reporter, and he was he was pressing buttons and he was asking about state money and stuff like that, and that's where Calhoun went off him. And then Dave Solomon, who passed, who was a sports columnist, register and knew it was closer to Calhoun than I was, asked about Ryan Gomes, uh, and that's where he let go about a zillion f bombs. You know, you only say I effed up, I effed up. He was yelling. That's 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 ones on the that th those two are on the uh, internet for immortality. Uh, but uh, he had gotten. He goes, I got Emeka Okafor and I got Karan Butler. I didn't get Ryan Gomes, who was a kid from Waterbury. Mm -hmm. uh, it really was a, a little pudgy coming out of high school. And he turned out to be a great player, and he went to NBA. Um, but he went off that day. But it was just a lot of the small stuff. Like, you ask a question after a loss. I can't remember everything about it, but it was harsh, snide remarks. And I always thought he was better than that. And uh, I will say, though, from the – there was one Jim Calhoun from the opening buzzer to the completion of the press conference. Away from it, he's an interesting dude. He's a smart guy, really engaging. Uh, yeah, I had it out with it. But you know what's really weird is that, I don't know, people know that he came back after retirement, coached Division right, three basketball, Joseph's. right, for yeah. three years. In West Hartford. St. Joseph's, who was ranked number one in the country with Glenn Miller, who was a coach yeah. with him. Yeah, five years. He, he, uh, he retires from Connecticut in 2012. Five years later, he comes back to coach and start a program, St. Joseph's, a D3. Yeah. 
And after all these things I'd gone with him, the, the height of the problem with him with me was 2006. A guy named Marcus Williams, they lost, that was a year that they lost to George Mason. Remember, they were upset. They thought they could win a national title there. 2006, they lost in the regional finals. But a guy, Marcus Williams, a, uh, a guard, star guard, he was involved in stealing laptops. And I thought he should have been gone for the year and uh, Jim let him back after the non-conference mm-hmm. season. So that was a course that was a source of a lot of, of consternation. But anyway, he retires. Uh, I wrote a story about how he'd thrown up all, all over the inside of the coach, uh, the coach's office at Bass Square Garden after a big loss. He claims it was orange soda, but anyway, he, he retires, comes back. And l- this is crazy. My son, Liam was, uh, all state, second-team All-State basketball right. player. And he went and played D3 ball at LaSalle, which is in the same league as Jim Calhoun's St. Joseph's team. And so my, my son played against Jim Calhoun. <laughs> but he was by that time. We, Jim and I became buddies about over talking D3 basketball. And I, I, I remember looking at him, I go like, Jim, who would have known we'd just be arguing like crazy about Syracuse, but we became buddies over Albertus Magnus. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so like he and I have really, you know, I, I used to tie, I haven't talked to him in like a year or so, but like he and I uh, get, get along just grand. And I like to think that, uh, and, and one thing I will say about Jimmy, he won the 12 rounds. I mean, you know, he went until, uh, he couldn't go any further. He never cut, took the shortcuts. And he loved basketball so much. They came back. He was a Hall of Fame. He comes back as yeah. a D3 coach. So, shows, you know, like right? seeing that, that, that shows you like, and then my kids playing. I mean, you know who played against Jim Calhoun or played for him? You know, Ray Allen, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he's out there coaching his mind out and my kids on the other team. <laughs> it was like, I said, this dude loves basketball. So, I got a different view of Jim Calhoun now than, than I did 15 when years ago. When he won those championships at Connecticut, 1999, 2004, 2011, how did you view him then compared to how you view him now? Oh, well, the 1999, and I didn't have much problems. The 1999 first championship, because he had, he had made some runs at the Final Four and not made it. And he, and he won out in Phoenix to get into the Final Four. It was the only time I ever saw him cry uh, in a side room. I was in there. Bill Plasky from the LA Times was in there. Just a few people. It was the only time I ever saw him cry. And when he won in 99, it was bigger than life here in Connecticut. I think like 55% of the television uh, sets were on the night that they beat Duke down there, down there in St. Petersburg. It was huge. I can't even, you know, it was like, it was, it was big, big. And I'm trying to think about that. He, he, he was he was, I just think about Khalid Al-Amin rushing right, I was sitting right behind the, the TV guys. He said, we shocked the world, we shocked the world. And he, he was, it was just such a breakthrough for him. For him. And then when he went to 4 he had a great team uh, with Oak 4 Ben Gordon. They were the best team. 11, they kind of snuck in. They, you know, uh, the, the, uh, and they won over, uh, I can't think of their name. What's the school? Uh, Butler. And, uh, you know, uh, by that time, I did not have as good relationship. But I remember going up to him and making a point of, you know, congratulating him right at the time and everything like that. So 
It was off and on. And I viewed him, I viewed him at that point as just a guy. He was up there, you know, when he won his third. A lot of people won one or two, but the win his third. Well, one, then he's up there with Wooden, uh, Rupp, fourth. Knight, Shashevsky. Yeah, yeah. Right? Those yeah, are the yeah, names you're one, with yeah. now. Yeah. You can't deny it. And then you, the wins, the wins, the wins. So uh, he's up there as one of the greatest coaches ever. He was he certainly built one of the, he might be the, as great a builder of a program as ever. I mean, same with Gino on the women's side. But uh, he was, uh, He's a complex. I mean, uh, as I like to say about Calhoun, he's a 700-page Russian novel. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of woo, woo, ups and downs, slow going, fast going. And so you, you, you kind of just got to stick in there, you know what I mean? And, uh, and some days you there's lots of roses and a lot of days there's some punches, you know? Or, it's interesting that you guys are now at the point where you're older <laughs> and, you know, the, yeah. the pressure's different. He just, uh, he retired this year again for the, for the right. final time from St. Joseph's. Right. Just the D3, the D3 aspect of it, just the basketball aspect of it, you know, good enough to be something, but not so big that it was like it consumed everybody's mind. And he was still out there coaching, yelling at officials. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like I'm sitting in the stands and he's yelling about some some hack that my kid had that got away with. <laughs> I, I felt like yelling. He didn't touch him, but like you know, it came full like, circle. He went from I, yelling yelling at you to yelling about your kid. <laughs> well, I think that shows the passion. I think you can relate to that, right? The passion. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As I will say this, as I looked at this over the years, uh, I realized that if I was a coach, I probably would have been a lot closer to the way he acted on the sidelines than the way John Wooden acted on the sidelines. So I can't, I, I also thought about that maybe not, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm firing those rocks from a glass house. In a oh, yeah. I always think house. about how would yeah. I have reacted to some of my own questions or something that I wrote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that passion is something that I've always admired in you, Jeff. It's been a lot of fun to uh, reconnect and, and share some of the great stories that you have encountered in your, uh, in your wonderful career. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for having me, Tyler. I, I, I really do appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous 
odds makers and influencers. Every episode of Double Down with Breslow is packed with insider tips, deeply skilled analysis, and in-depth discussions. Don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting. Listen to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Double Down with Breslow, the business of sports betting podcast.